This episode of the Cascadian Beer Podcast has been made possible by the BC Ale Trail. Arrive thirsty, leave inspired at bcaletrail.ca. Expanding your brewery isn't just as easy as doubling your recipes and adding more tanks. It takes detailed planning and preparation. Welcome to the Cascadian Beer Podcast. My name's Aaron and I'm a Cascadian. I have a background in radio and television broadcasting. I'm a music producer and have a passion for beer. I don't consider myself an expert in beer by any means, but I do enjoy and respect the craft and the passion of these brewmasters. I want to learn from these pioneers and what sets them apart from the rest and why they choose to call Cascadia their home. Cascadia is a bioregion in the Pacific Northwest on the North American continent. It is made up of the U.S. states of Washington and Oregon as well as the Canadian province of British Columbia. In this podcast series, I'll be profiling the unique breweries of Cascadia, a region that has a strong presence on the international beer scene. Today, I'm in Surrey, British Columbia. Just south of the Fraser River is the production facility for Central City Brewers and Distillers. They didn't start here. This is an expansion. And that's why I've come to talk to Gary Lowen about the history of Central City and where they're heading. I'm Gary Lowen. I'm brewmaster slash partner of Central City Brewers and Distillers. And when did you guys start Central City? We opened up Central City in late of 2003. I started brewing. We was a brew pub at the, at that time, right? So, and they had managed to finish the brewery a little earlier than the rest of the restaurant. So I I was brewing a couple of months even before the restaurant uh, opened, trying to have some beers ready. So yeah, late 2003. And where was that brew pub? It, it is at the Central City Complex at, uh, in Surrey at King George and 102nd Avenue. How did beer find you? How did beer find me? Yeah. Yeah, I was, so I'm gonna, I have to go back quite a bit and, uh, to the early 80s and when I was going to university and um, I didn't, and here in Vancouver, and I didn't like any of the beers that were in pubs. And, and when you're a university guy, that's kind of what you do with your buddies. Go to, you, know, hang, you go to class too, but you hang out and drink beers after. And, uh, and it was your big three was Carlings, Labats, and Molson's at the time. And I don't think they even had a dark beer. If it was a dark beer, it was a lousy contract Guinness they were putting out. It was nowhere near Guinness and, and, uh, or something that was a predecessor to today's, uh, some of the Keith's amber beers. Like it was a beer that had, you know, black syrup in it or something to make it like, so there wasn't any good beer. I hated it. I started homebrewing a couple of homebrew shops around Vancouver I uh, started to make my own beer at home, and uh, lo and behold, the very first one I made actually turned out okay, because if it didn't, I don't know that I'd be sitting here talking to you today, right? So I just, I, I kept going forward and read Charlie Pabazian's book, The Joy of Home Brewing, and kind of went through the book and followed his recipes and started brewing from uh, all grain, and then entering homebrew competitions and doing well, and uh, that's where the amateur side started. But then, so I was around mid-80s is when the very first craft brewing explosion took off. So it was when Granville Island first opened up in Vancouver. And, and, and around that time, too, it was uh, Spinnaker's as well was opening up on the island. And, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Spinnaker's was opening up 
uh, you know, a brew pub there as well. And there was, was the one in Horseshoe Bay prior to that. And, uh, it was the Horseshoe Bay brew pub. And that was actually the very first brew pub in North America. And it preceded Burt Grant's by about six months, I think. And, uh, uh, it was kind of cool, but it was loosely, you know, it was a the trolder pub, but the, the brew pub wasn't attached or the brewery wasn't attached to it, but they had some kind of a, an agreement. Um, and that's where the BC government first gave out their very first and only cottage brew license, because after that they changed the name. But I remember it, you know, Horseshoe Bay used to have that cottage brewery license hanging in their brewery for many years. And uh, it was very interesting. So that's, and then, you know, Granville Island came out and that was, I guess, a very big one. And, and their beer today's standards would be, you know, middle of the road. But back then it, it was so hoppy, it shocked everybody. And I think it almost put them out of business and they had to change the recipe to make it a little more less bitter at that time because yeah people were just not used to it but uh and they were a forerunner and then okanagan springs came out and they came out with a lager too but what their groundbreaking beer was their okanagan springs pale ale because that truly in british columbia was the beer that paved the way for all these breweries that are here today because it opened up doors it almost every publican and restaurant had that beer on tap and it was a pale ale you know it wasn't a lager and it tasted fruity and but as it was accessible it really started a revolution and i know a guy there used to work there during that time the keg sales went from you know 60 kegs a, a week to 120 to 180 to 240 and it just started exploding and they couldn't keep up that was a cool really cool uh time in the industry and then shaftbury uh, some of these older and Vancouver island and swans on Vancouver Island as well. And all these little breweries started opening up, which most of them are around today still in some former fashion. So mid-80s was the very first boom. Uh, anyways, And yeah. so was that your kind of inspiration then to get into brewing more? Like, because, you know, you were home brewing at that time. And did you think seeing these breweries opening up that there was a career path for you then to actually do something that you enjoyed? Well, I didn't actually look at it that way until... I was a bartender at a pub and uh, I was, you know, doing my thing. And in came a, this rep from the Whistler Brewing Company. And we'd been selling their beer a little bit for maybe two or three months. When Whistler first started, this was about 87, 88. And so they came out with a premium lager and it was really good. It was a good beer. And then one day the rep came in. I'd been chatting with him. He goes, hey, you know what? Do you know anybody? We're looking for, um, for a rep in the Vancouver area. And I immediately put up my hand because <laughs> so I was looking for, a, you know, I didn't want to be a bartender for the rest of my life. And that's how I got my very first professional job in the brewing industry, albeit it was a sales rep at the time, but it, I knew it was my foot in the door anyways. And um, I ended up work, quitting the job at the pub and uh, being a bartender and ended up working for the Whistler Brewing Company. Did you get to do any brews with them? Near the end, yes. And so I, I was pretty successful as a salesman, only because they were a small company, hadn't really sold any beer yet, but I also knew what I was talking about. So it was easy to sell a good product at that time. But they knew my passion was for brewing. So I started brewing a little bit uh, for them. But then um, through just through networking and being in the industry, I got a call from Okanagan Springs Brewery. And they were, you know, leading brewery. And they asked me if I wanted to come work for them. That was kind of a cool thing, right? So... I went up and I moved up to Vernon and I ended up working under Stefan Tobler, who's still there today. And the brewery at that time was owned by their family. So it was really nice working for a small German family, you know, brewing beers that I guess I would say traditional to their sense. So we were brewing some amazing beers at the time with the uh, Okanagan Springs Brewery. We had a, you know, 
we called old Munich 100 was a heavy vice and nobody at the time even knew what the heavy vice was here and it was bottle conditioned even back then and then this was early 90s by the way and then um uh we had the old english porter eight and a half percent bottle conditioned porter just stuff like that and that that were it was really innovative to at that time uh, you look if you think about it from today's standards yeah big deal a porter and uh, a heavy bison but back then it was groundbreaking oh, yeah, there was just no options right it was just lager and then the pale ale that they were shipping out right yeah really i mean that's really what got me into brewing like from your very first question is because there was really no options and it was about time that we needed we got some options here in bc mm-hmm. yeah. and like because uh, around that time too it just south of the border things were really developing quite quickly it seemed compared to what was going on up here right and in terms of availability of different styles of beer you know it started up here pretty early but you know i know it's government regulation and there was some there's a lot definitely taxation is involved and probably another couple of factors i mean population as well so i think a little bit of deregulation in the states or maybe not so not so much regulation not not saying deregulation caused their industry to grow a little faster than it up here but it it started almost the same time like, mm-hmm. and you're, cause, you know, this is the Cascadian beer podcast. So mm-hmm. uh, definitely we started about the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But maybe one of those factors, I mean, I haven't researched this too much, but it must have just been the supply chain, right? Where the supply chains must have been more available in the States than they were out to Canada at that time. Absolutely. And yeah. also the proximity to the Yakima hop fields too. And I mean, the Cascade hop was really the, the thing that exploded and, and all of a sudden, wow, what's this flavor? And, you know, for a while, every single brewery was using it. Some other beers all tasted the same. Uh, so, but no, it, it was a, yeah, Cascade Hop was a big part of history in getting craft beers going, right? If I do believe, I think that hop was bred at uh, the University of Oregon, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 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 I'm not 100% sure, but you're probably right. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Sierra Nevada took that hop and, and ran with it. And, uh, you know, they're, and they made some excellent beers. They opened everybody's eyes up too, like, for one of the be- bigger breweries, which is still producing excellent beers today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does Central City come into the picture then for you? Like how, how did you get to the brew pub and, and what was the story behind opening? So I actually, op- in 1994, I actually opened up the very first brew pub in the Vancouver area. And it was called Sailor Hager's and it was in North Vancouver near the Lonsdale Quay. The regulations at that time, that our pub was only allowed to have 60 seats, which isn't a lot, right? And... Mm-hmm. You know, I, and we started a brew pub there and and just economics of the times and stuff. And then getting to about 2003, that was there almost nine years and doing some wonderful things and experimenting with recipes because I was just given license to do so uh, by that pub. And uh, but 2003, just for economics, they decided to close the brewing portion of it, keep the pub open, but then the brewery ended up becoming a liquor store you know, RIP. It's too bad. And uh, so I was forced to go look around and I met Daryl Frost, who's my partner today. And he was opening up Central City Brew Pub in Surrey. And he had been with the Mark James Group, which has had Yale Town Brew Pub and the Brew Pub in Whistler and Big Ridge Brewing at, you know, 152 and Number 10 Highway in Surrey. And he had a few. And uh, so, but Daryl, I guess, broke off from Mark James and went on his own. And uh, I just happened to meet him during that summer of 2003 and myself and him and uh, another gentleman as our uh, CFO. There was three of us that started this brew pub venture. And then I just going to fast forward to today. 
just quickly, just because uh, just the numbers we're talking about. So today, we're starting from three people in 2003. We now have uh, two brew pubs, this beautiful facility, and uh, we also have a standalone private liquor store, but we now employ over 215 people. So. And and we're recording this near the end of 2017, so yeah. I mean that's that's a huge, <laughs> yeah, that's a huge so leap. Our, yeah. our, we have grown quite a bit, and we also employ people, which we really like doing. Yep, and they're all employed because we make beer. <laughs> yeah, I'm in conversation with Gary Lowen, brewmaster for Central City Brewers and Distillers. Central City is showcased on the New West Delta and Surrey Ale Trail, along with Steel and Oak Brewing Company and Four Winds Brewing. This area along the Fraser River is a booming part of Metro Vancouver, and the best way to discover what else you can find is by visiting bcaletrail.ca. The BC Ale Trail showcases many parts of the province, and on the website you'll find recommended itineraries for each region, a comprehensive list of every craft brewery in BC, a calendar of beer events, and a blog with lots of great stories. The regional ale trails include local breweries, pubs, and restaurants, along with other activities the area has to offer. So whether you're planning a weekend trip or being a tourist in your own backyard, let the BC Ale Trail guide you to your next beer adventure. Arrive thirsty, leave inspired at bcaletrail.ca. All right, so we have a little bit of Gary's history, but now Central City is starting to expand. They're growing. So what happened along the way and what were some of the challenges that they faced? I'm in conversation with Gary Lowen. So the brew pub opens the restaurant side you said wasn't quite open yet. So you were, you had a chance to get a couple brews in on the system before you were up and running. Were you selling that at all at the brew pub without a fully functional restaurant or were you shipping it out somewhere? No, we waited for the restaurant to open, but I, that, when I had three beers that were mature at the time, so we didn't open up with a one week old beer. Right. Like I had a lager and a white ale and a blonde ale, I think, or, and so the beer had time to mature, and then I had time to fill up my tanks, and so the following beers would be mature too. So when we opened, it was about two months, I guess. I was just by myself working there with construction. I'd get up and have construction dust inside my brewery almost every morning, um, only because the ventilation and system would, would just spread it out all over the place, right? Lucky I had uh, closed fermentation tanks at the time, so... Uh, everything stayed clean, but yeah, so we, we went from there. We had a soft opening late 2013 and, uh, 2003, sorry, three, yeah. 2003, I'm sorry, late 2003 soft opening and, uh, went from there. All right. And, uh, are any of those beers that you opened with, with the brew pub still available today? Uh, I, not under the same name. Um, but a lot of my recipes other than tweaking them have stayed fairly close but, but of course you know hops and malt are both crops and so you do change a little bit there and I update it maybe with some of the newer hops sometimes but uh when i was making a you know a german lager it's you're making a lager it, it doesn't change too much anyway uh, you want to hit you know close to 25 bu if you're just making a and you're using you know the best malt that you can anyway but yeah things like that uh you tweak and you come up with new recipes but some of the core stuff that was born definitely was born out of Central City Brew Pub. So, what then jumpstart the creation of this facility? Because this is a custom build that we're that we're at at the moment, which is your production facility. Yeah. Well, how did this come about? Like, were you just overrun at the brew pub, or was there just an idea of we we need to expand and we need to keep growing? Well, yeah, we we started to package at the brew pub. We started we had because we had a standalone liquor store up there and. Um, we had a liquor store license when we opened up in that space in the Central City complex. So 
uh, we decided that we we're going to can some product just for our own storage and do uh, and test it and see what happens. And you were one of the first to can in BC at the time, right? Yeah, I was the first. And I think I was one of the first in North America, actually, as well. I think the only other brewery I, that I think was doing it was Oscar Blues at the time. And uh, I know because the six-pack applicator that put, put six-pack rings on was uh, the Oscar Blues was the test uh, model. I'm talking craft brewery here now, too. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because cans were available for big brewery for, yeah. for a long time. But but Oscar Blues know. was having this six pack applicator so they could make a six pack, and it was you know it was a mechanical one, and and they were a beta test because then when we bought that version, we our, our serial number on that six pack applicator was zero zero one. Right. So I know I I don't know of any other brewery that was I, I could be corrected that was in North America that was doing craft beer in cans, and definitely it was a stigma. To push craft beer in cans at the time, every craft beer, every, you know, the packaging and the bottle just made it seem a little more premium. And but now, if you look at it in today's market, bottling it's flipped; it's gone the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what was the response then for the cans? Was it hard to sell when when you pushed them out? And it wasn't actually. And we did get comments and. People say, oh, I taste the aluminum, which isn't true because there's a liner on all the cans and that's just a, a myth. But, uh, yeah, people still, we have to break that stigma, but our sales uh, proved that we were on the right path anyway. And then we got to a point, so, okay, we're starting to sell more, so we have to make more, so we don't have enough tanks to make more, so we, can, we need to add some more tanks. So we, we found a space that was next door, a smaller spa- space, but still we had put a few tanks in it. And we bought a canning, yeah, the canning line we put in there and with just a couple of extra tanks. And then uh, decided to try another beer. And then and we had three beers out, and they were all different names. And the third one we put out was Red, uh, Red Racer Pale Ale, right? And that, that is our brand now. And so we, so we noticed out uh, the sales that this Pale Ale just took off. And we were, we were looking at it, and we're going, hmm, I wonder if it's the can or it's the, it's the logo, which is the girl riding the bike. Right. And so we, um, we decided, oh, well, let's give this a shot. We're going to, let's just put everything under the Red Racer moniker. And so we, we had a lager and a Vit beer, a white ale out. And so we put them all under Red Racer and then all the beers took off. So we knew we had something. Then the fourth beer we put out was our IPA. And then when we put that out, it exploded. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I was talking to another person in the beer industry here saying like all hell broke loose when that beer came out. So just, just in terms of just cracking that can open and just getting that waft of hops coming out. Yeah. Like it just, that it, it was a big game changer, I think yeah, at, at the time. And people should know that actually beer is the can is better for beer and, and the fact that it'll keep the can fresher and you don't, it won't be light struck and, and the air and the oxidizing component of the air that you, that is less than, and then it would be the bottle. Now you have to have a good packaging line, but cans are better for beer. Yeah. <laughs> and they're more recyclable. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So (laughs) what were the struggles in opening this facility? Because it's a, it's a huge facility and how big is it? Obviously. So we, we, we turned, we looked around, we toured around in the States a bit and we went to some breweries that expanded like that. We did tours Sierra Nevada and Lagunitas and there was a few more. I can't even remember all of them now, but we tried to look at what they did correctly and maybe something that they didn't do. And one of the biggest things that we saw was breweries, building too small and then add, having to add buildings onto it. And, and I think when we toured Sierra Nevada, they must have had eight different additions uh, to their main building already, right? Which to us was planning. And then Lagunitas, 
Um, they had a fairly bigger building, and they had some, but they were also in a complex which was, it was not a purposely built building. So we found that they had to move stuff from one bay to the next bay, and then you had forklifts driving all over the place, and, and chances of people running into forklifts. And we saw, so that was a bit of a jumble. We saw what they did. So the challenge was we had to build a building future-proof here, and it was probably overbuilt at the, build, at the beginning, right? And, and, uh, but it isn't today, but at back, and it's, it hasn't even been that long, but at the time it was overbuilt, we opened up. It's pretty empty. And you're paying for a lot of space that you're not, you weren't using at the time. So uh, that is definitely a challenge in trying to get the brewery to you know, maximum efficiency and, and where it's, you know, where it's all being utilized properly, right? Absolutely. You have to, we have to grow into it, in other words. Mm-hmm. So how many tanks did you have when you first opened? Yeah, we started off with 10 tanks. Uh, and even that was probably, for us, was overbuilt too because i remember you know we maybe didn't use a couple at the very beginning and uh, then you have to keep expanding and, and what we grew onto it pretty quickly and as our markets expanded and maybe in different provinces we started selling our beer and our ipa in different provinces and it took off what, what is the leaderage of those tanks oh so yeah started off with six twenty thousand liter tanks and four thirty thousand liter tanks so now we have six twenty thousand liter tanks which is the same Instead of four thirty thousand, we have twenty six thirty thousand liter vessels now. Like on average, how often do those tanks turn over? You know what tank residency? It's beer dependent, but a good average is about month to five weeks. Yeah. So every month, it's just this whole facility clears out and new beer goes in. Well, the, kind the, of because everything's in different stages. You might have one going in now, but one mm-hmm. one that's already had five weeks and coming out. So yeah, everything turns over different stages and it's beer dependent too you'll have a, a white ale that is nice at three weeks but you want your lager maybe five or six weeks mm. yeah so what challenges then do you face uh, going to a size like this right because I, I i can see the assumption of i have the space i have the room to grow but like you said the efficiency of the brewery like what what is that major step that you guys had to take in order to operate efficiently at this size compared to what you were doing before at the brew pub well, we, we also built this brewery, so now we can, we don't have a style, and we have space to do your seasonals and stuff that we didn't before, and we're doing a sour program, and we have whiskey, and you know, and it, I, we tried to build this brewery that there wasn't anything that beer-related that we couldn't do, so, you know, if our brewers or our creativity wanted to, to take us in one direction, um, we can still do it, so you do want to maximize your brewery, right? You you want to be selling all that beer and all those tanks. But even now, you don't want to overproduce, and that's a challenge And because you want your customer to have the freshest beer. At, at, what we try to employ is um, uh, the packaging term is like right on time. So we won't package until we have like orders for that. So when we ship it, it's fresh. And it's a challenge to do that. In the off-seasons and shoulder seasons where beer consumption dwindles, you've got to match your production to that demand, right? And so a busy time of year would be summer? Absolutely. Peak yeah. for every brewery, right, yeah. too, for sure. And for, for me, I think uh, wintertime is also kind of interesting for breweries, and that's when you get those seasonals and yep. everything else. But, like, is, is the demand not there? There is. Like, like in this holiday season, it, com- it comes up again. There's another short spike for that, too. And it's a challenge as a brewery to, uh, to try to, you know, lessen some of those dips in the shoulder seasons to find new markets whether they're in Canada or, or even offshore. I mean, there's lots of breweries in BC now that are shipping 
to Asian countries and stuff like that too. And it's, it's exploding over there. You also have a uh, spirits program up here. How did that project start? Well, when we definitely, when we were designing this new facility to open up in 2013, uh, I have a passion for whiskey and, uh, but I had noticed, you know, breweries in the States that, and I like, when I travel in the States and if it's a holiday, um, I'm always looking for local beer. And so I noticed a lot of breweries that were just starting to distill. And given the, in, you need the infrastructure of a brewery to make, you know, whiskey washes or, uh, washes that are for gin, you need the infrastructure of that brewery. So having, for the amount of money, say, we spent on this building and all the brewing equipment, the small fraction we paid for a couple of stills initially to have a second revenue stream was absolutely a no-brainer. And given the fact that you see the whiskey market today is pretty rampant with you know a lot of the older, aged whiskeys being sold out already and, and distilleries have, releasing non-aged products now because they don't, have enough time and the demand's too high i think we made the uh, for whiskey i think we made a right decision mm-hmm. and you also do gin as well right yeah we did a gin and it's a clear spirit we and uh, we can do that but our passion is whiskey but our gin has done really well and and in international competitions and blind tastings and it's won a double gold in uh, san diego and, san, and and both san francisco and san diego spirit awards yeah this year right yep and so with that comes barrels and so you now have a barrel program as well for not only your whiskey, but also your beer as well, right? Absolutely. We have beer in barrels and lots of uh, spirit in barrels. And it's kind of cool because we, we can come full circle. I've gone to the point now where I can go take one of my beers and put it into one of our own whiskey barrels that has, once the barrel has been blended and, and packaged, so I can put beer in there. And, and conversely, our uh, distiller, Stuart McKinnon, has taken some of our beer barrels that we've had. And once the beer is out of there, he's put spirit in there. And uh, it's almost like a collaboration within your own company or within your own brewery. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the next step then for you guys? Like, what, where's the trajectory for what you guys have set? Are you just kind of sticking with your plan now? Or do, do you have some more extreme experiments in, well, in mind? We're, we're always going to experiment with beer and spirits and keep trying to find new flavors like our sour program you know uh, we have that as well we like to fool around but those are beers that we like to um you know a traditional belgian style sour program where the beer is not released until the the beer is ready so i'm saying this like you're going to get two one and a half to two year old sours out of here and you know aging and the whiskey and 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 releasing some when when we can but also having hold back of that same lot and then trying to achieve you know, some age designation, whether it's a five or an eight or even a 10-year-old, this would be a goal of mine to have to have a sample of my own 10-year-old whiskey. That'd be cool. I can't wait for that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is the latest boom in craft breweries in not only just the Metro Vancouver area, but also throughout BC? Have you felt a bit of a pressure from that at all um, in terms of the company or... Is, is there room for everybody still in, in the market, do you think, for think, craft beer? Yeah, definitely you feel it because there are, uh, there, I think there's about 140 breweries in BC right now. And of course, when you go try to sell your keg at that pub, there's only a so, certain amount of taps. And so, yeah, there is lots of competition for that. And so. And a lot of taps are still owned by big beer breweries too, and a, and a lot of pubs, right? Absolutely. Of yeah. course, the big, yeah, the big breweries, yeah, even you say owned. We'll mm-hmm. just leave it at that, mm-hmm. right? But um, so, yeah, so there is competition there. And so th- I guess you have to come up with points of difference and 
And whether that's packaging or whether it's price or whether it's beer or whether it's some type of marketing, we're all competitors here and everybody wants to sell their beer and it's increasingly difficult. But in the collaborative you know, world of craft beer, I think we're still all friends too. Um, but it's still a business and you got to make money or else you're not going to be around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your spread now? Are you, are you shipping coast to coast in Canada? Yeah, we, we don't, you know, we sell across Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some markets more than others and, and that's normal, but yeah. And some products that in, in some provinces than some not. And, and so, yeah, we do a lot of shipping and that's, that's also a challenge in making sure that, that our beer is fresh when it's getting to that market or you're not over shipping or you, your customer isn't over ordering. Um, which happens a lot because you, you don't want stale beer sitting on a shelf. That's a, it can be the death of you for sure. So is Red Racer IPA still your top selling beer? It is. It's still our top selling beer. And it's what we lead with in a lot of markets uh, today still when we're trying to open up a market. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then what would be a close second? Our India Session Ale is right up there. But it, we find it a little more seasonal. And, and we find it sells like crazy in the summer and and not so much, I guess, in the winter, but we find our IPA sells all year round. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So if somebody was wanting to get into brewing themselves, uh, what would be some uh, basic tips or advice that you'd give a new home brewer? Well, if they were a home brewer or, you know, and if they wanted to be a little more serious, I would really look at some of the local schools that are putting on some pretty cool programs these days, you know, and even if it's Maybe, you know, there's some local ones, but there's also good ones in Alberta and Ontario. And and if you're going to open up a brewery, you have to, to be in it for the long haul. Don't think you're going to open up a brewery and uh, just to make money because you're not going to make a lot of money with a brewery, but you're going to be probably happy and you're going to be in a great environment and you're going to have, uh, you're going to be within that community of craft brewing and uh, you're probably going to have a happier life for sure. But you got to be in for the long haul. You have to plan on no revenue in that very first year in your business. You have to plan one year. You, ha- you better have one year's revenue in the bank to float you until, until all the wheels are turning and you have revenue coming in. Yeah, r- real important. A lot of breweries undercapitalize, and that can be the death of you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yep. Big thank you to Gary for his time. Uh, it's... <laughs> It's, it's, it's all go there all the time. It's such a huge production facility and they're just trying to keep up with demand and it's such a slick operation at the same time. But still, thank you so much, Gary, for taking the time to sit down with me. Thanks again to the BCL Trail for making this episode possible. You can check them out at bcltrail.ca. If this is your first time here and you've enjoyed the episode, hope you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have the ability to leave a review, please do so. Or if you have the ability to star in the app that you're listening to, please start this episode and feel free to share it because it really helps get this episode and the others into as many ears as possible. If you want to follow us on social media, you can. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. We're on Twitter at Cascadian Beer on Instagram at Cascadian Beer Podcast, and you can always head to the website at cascadian.beer. We talked a lot about beer and cans in this episode, and if you want to hear more about that, I spoke with mobile canning company West Coast Canning a few episodes ago. So why don't you go to cascadian.beer and click in the archives there, and you'll find the episode with West Coast Canning. Thank you so much again for listening. I really appreciate your time and your ears. So until next time, remember, support your local.